Uh, we right now are in the sermon series. It's going to take uh, over a year. We'll end right in time for Christmas. We're in a sermon series in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is a, a theologically uh, historical book. So it's telling the story of the early church. So right after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, now his, uh, he sends the Holy Spirit into Christians, into his church, and now the church is born and it's spreading and little local churches are, are uh, springing up all over the ancient world. And this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16 and we're going to see the gospel move from the global east to the global west. It's going to move from the Middle East, from Asia, now for the first time into Europe. And so we're going to see the unique aspects of what's going on with, with the gospel moving into a new continent, moving into a new part of the world. And we're going to see a lot of the same stuff, right? God being in control, the gospel not being able to stop, uh, be stopped, the, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness of sin being so contagious that people just love it and eat it up and, 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 and uh, believe in it and trust in it and new churches starting. So some new stuff and some stuff we've seen over and over again as we see the gospel spread west. So we're going to flip in your Bibles to Acts 16. We're going to be in uh, these 10 verses, verses 6 through 15, kind of two different paragraphs, two different parts to this story. We're going to break it up into that, but um, if you want, you can flip to there. It's also going to be on the screen behind me, or you can follow along in your sermon insert. All the text is on there today. So we're going to start uh, right away in verse 6. So when they say they, we're talking about this, this same church planting team that we've heard about for the previous few weeks. So Paul and this new guy that's with him this time, Silas, and then uh, Timothy, who we just uh, met uh, last week, and then we're going to see a new person join the team this week. So when it says they, that's what it means. All right, so let's start in uh, verse 6. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia. So, hard word to say. So if you remember uh, Paul's first missionary journey, he went through these same locations. So Paul has a new ministry partner. His uh, initial goal is, let's go back to the churches we started. Let's go back and encourage them in the faith, help build them up, these young believers, these young, young churches, and we're going to bring this new message from the Jerusalem Council, from the, the church when they got together to talk about what does, what does one need to be converted? What does one need to be saved? Do they need to convert to uh, Judaism first, or can they just trust in, in Jesus Christ? And the church in Jerusalem, or all the churches got together in Jerusalem, and that council said, no, all, all you need to do is just believe in Christ. So Paul wants to both encourage these churches and bring this this message and, and spread it there. So our passage starts off by saying Paul went back to where he was at at the end of his first journey. So up here in the, the province of uh, the region of Galatia. So if you know the New Testament book of Galatians, it's written back to the churches in this place. So this is Paul's first journey. So they're going through this uh, journey here. But now what we're going to see, so, so this slide is Paul's first journey. The next slide shows what this second missionary, the second church planning journey is going to look like. So a little bit hard to see, but what we can see here is that it expands just greatly. So from going, it, this was the trip, that little loop, and then back again. But now he's going to go way beyond modern day Turkey and now cross into, this is modern day Greece. So he's going to cross into uh, a new place, a, a new continent into the global west. So let's keep reading. So verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is a, a region, we'll see that on the map again, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bethania, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so right off the bat, in the second missionary journey, we see the Holy Spirit very carefully guiding them exactly where he wants them to go and where he doesn't want them to go. And here it's called... Uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and then later the Spirit of Jesus, which is just another name for the Holy Spirit, both because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are so united in the Trinity and unified, as well as Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit. So here Luke calls him uh, the Spirit of Jesus. And so they try to go south. So, so they're in where Paul was initially uh, on his first missionary journey, and they're trying to continue. They try to go south, and the Holy Spirit blocks them and says no. Don't go there. And so they say, well, okay, well, we'll go north then. And so they try to go north, and the Spirit of Jesus shows up and denies them there as well. So it's kind of as if God is acting, you know, like a sheepdog, kind of corralling this missionary team 
uh, telling them exactly where to go. They try to turn left. God says no. They try to turn right. God says no. And he's trying to guide them to specific cities and specific regions. Okay, yeah. So here's that same map of their, uh, their trip. So they started off right here in our passage. So they turned left to go to Asia, which is not the continent of Asia, but this region here. And the Holy Spirit says no. So then they turn and try to go north to the next region. Uh, and the Holy Spirit also says no to that one. And then we see them continue beyond that. So let's pick it back up in verse 8. So passing by uh, Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they continue to be led by the Spirit. God tells them exactly where they want to go. So they cannot go north. They cannot go south. So they continue going on straight. And then they end up here at Troas. They end up uh, with uh, facing a sea and are just wondering, okay, God, is this where you want us to go? And Paul has this vision. And as they're waiting for God to tell them, okay, now where to go? Are we going to stay in Troas? What do you want us to do? Paul gets this vision, a vision of a man who comes from this region of Macedonia, which is right there across the sea, who's begging Paul, come and help us. And so Paul shares this, this vision with his church planning team. He says, you know, he asks them, what do you guys think? Is this from God? Is this what we're supposed to do? Did I eat something before bed that is messing with me? But they agree together. This whole team says, yes, that is what God is saying. He didn't want us to go south. He didn't want us to go north. And now through this vision, he's making it very clear exactly where the the journey needs to go. So together, as a team, they say, this is where we're going to go. And maybe you picked up on this too, that uh, instead of saying he or they or them, we now saw these words. We saw we and us for the first time now in the book of Acts. And so it's at this point that the author of Acts, if you remember, we talked about this guy. He's a physician. He wrote the book of Acts, uh, and his name is Luke, the same guy that wrote the gospel of Luke if you know that book in uh, the New Testament. So it's at this point that another person is added to this, this church planting global missionary uh, team, uh, the guy, Luke. So now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, which we uh, gained last week, and now this new guy, Acts, who's the author, joined. So notice uh, for, the, for the next few chapters as we have we's and us's um, in the passage. So Luke joins a team. They cross the sea. They leave the global east and move into the global west. Verse 11, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, Samothrace and, following, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So we see the very beginning. This is the very beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. We see at the very onset that God is behind this. It's not just Paul's initial idea. Actually, Paul's initial idea doesn't happen. Paul just wanted uh, initially to go back to these churches that he had started and encourage them. And they do get to a few, but it's not the journey Paul, that, it's not the journey that Paul wanted. They've gained new people on this trip already. And uh, even in just a few verses that is starting this second missionary journey, we see that God is behind the expansion of the gospel. God is behind and leading this missionary journey. It's his plan. He's telling them where to go, when to go, and it's very clear. So we see that even though uh, Paul started off with an idea, this is not the trip, nor the people, nor the cities, nor the area necessarily that Paul, Silas, and Timothy wanted to go to. They're not just picking their, their uh, ethnic group. They're not just picking cities that they'd like to go visit. They're not just trying to reach uh, people groups that they like best but rather God is behind this. What's kind of cool in this passage, you don't see this often in the Bible, but we actually see all three members of the Trinity at the beginning of this passage. So as they begin to start this second uh, church planning journey, we see that God is really behind this. We see the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 6, Jesus mentioned in verse 7, and in verse 10, God is mentioned. So we see the Holy Spirit. 
So you might be just wondering, so what, what does this show us? What, what does this teach us? Why are all these details important? Why does Luke choose to put them in there? Why does the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to say things a certain way and, and talk about these details in the trip? I think one thing it, it is trying to teach us and show us is that God loves all people. That he loves not just the Jews, not just people in Asia, not just people in the Middle East or in Israel, but that God loves all people. He, he's uh, tirelessly guiding this missionary team to specific people groups uh, beyond the Middle East, beyond Israel, beyond Jerusalem and, and Antioch where this started. Since the very beginning, God's plan was to, to rescue and to save people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. So we see that throughout the Old Testament, as well as we see it at the very last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation that describes what's going to happen at the end when Jesus finally comes back and establishes his kingdom. There's people speaking every language in the world. There's people from every people group, every nation, every ethnicity. And so we're seeing this kind of play out in narrative form. God loves not just the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch, but he loves people all the way on a different continent and across oceans on a different side of the world. And he's sending his people to bring this good news to them. You also might be asking, but why is God leading them this particular way? Why is he sending people to Macedonia? Why, why didn't he send them to Asia? Or why didn't he send them north or, or far east? Why is he sending them to Macedonia? And we don't really know. We, uh, we have a couple ideas or some things that are true, but we don't know the full reason on why Macedonia right now. But the first thing that we do know is that uh, God is intentionally guiding these church planners to specific strategic cities. Not that he cares more about these cities than about smaller towns or other cities that these guys pass up, but God's doing something. He's, he's sending his missionaries to uh, unique, specific, strategic places, knowing that from there, uh, the gospel will spread. It will spread into the countryside. It will spread into other cities. So he's sending his missionaries to places like Philippi that are, that are well-known. He's sending them to port cities where people from all over the world are going to come and hear the gospel and then bring it back to their own uh, parts of the world. So God's doing that. That's partly the reason why he's sending uh, these people to Macedonia and these specific cities. But it's also clear to us that it is not that God doesn't care about these people groups or these cities in which they are being, uh, in which they are passing right now. We know that God deeply loves all people and that uh, his desire is that no one should perish, but that all people should come to faith and repentance. And not only that, but we actually see later in the New Testament, these two regions where the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus say, don't go to, we see in, in about a decade that these, both these places have uh, churches in them. And so uh, in first, uh, yeah, first Peter 1, so Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples, right now he's in the story, he's the leader in the, in the Jerusalem church, he writes a letter to Christians, and uh, it's now called First Peter. It's, it's in our Bible right now. And in it, he addresses Christians. And two of the places that he addresses Christians, he addresses churches, are these exact two places that Paul and Silas and their team does not go to. So even though God tells them, don't go north, don't go south, go to Macedonia, we see within a decade there are thriving churches in these two regions in which that they passed up. So in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter writes, he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, so Christians who are exiled uh, of the dispersion in all these different places, including Asia and uh, by, or Bithynia, Bithynia, whatever. <laughs> um, so while we don't know exactly why uh, the Holy Spirit is leading these guys uh, through this region and not to these two uh, locations, we do know that Jesus still loves them. And even in God's sovereign plan, uh, whether the gospel spreads from these other cities or whether it's Peter that goes there or other church planners or missionaries, uh, the gospel does get to these regions and these cities as well. So the gospel is now going in Acts 16 from the Eastern world into the Western world in an, in an unprecedented uh, movement in the book of Acts the gospel spreads not just or spreads uh, not just to a new continent, but to a new part of the world, from the global east to the global 
West. And we're going to see some unique differences. Like I said, there, the, the world just works differently in Greece than it does in the Middle East. The, the way people live and the way people um, interact, the values that they have, the way that they, uh, the way culture is set up here um, in the West is different than in the East. And we're going to see some of that, as well as just a lot of the same stuff we've been seeing over over uh, again in the book of Acts. But before we look about how it looks to spread the gospel in what's modern-day Greece, let's address probably a few questions that you maybe had as we just read this first paragraph. I know when my wife and I were studying this and uh, the other overseers and their wives, we got together a few weeks ago to study this passage. One of the questions that came up or that a bunch of people had was, um, well, what's kind of going on with the way that God is speaking to his people? Right? So, so far in our story, uh, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus tell this group of people, don't go north, don't go south. And then Paul actually has a vision. Whether it's a dream, whether it's supernatural, we're not quite sure, but Paul has this vision that God sends him, that there's a man that says, do a certain thing. And then Paul and his crew agree that that's what they are supposed to do. So as we're reading this, you might be thinking, is this normal? Does God... Does God talk to other people like this? Am I the only one that, that doesn't, seem, doesn't hear visions or, or uh, see these type of dreams? Is there something wrong with me? Am I less mature of a Christian because God doesn't really speak to me like he does to Paul and this group of people in Acts 16? Or maybe you're just wondering, does God love me enough to answer my prayers and guide me? It seems very clear like he's doing it to this group of people, but... I don't really see that in my life. Does that mean that God doesn't love me? Does it mean that I'm not as close to him? And those are really great questions, ones that uh, many of us have all the time, whether we're brand new believers, or whether we're not Christians yet, or whether we've been Christians for our whole lives. We just wonder, how does this type of stuff look in our own lives? Is this normal? Is this unique? What's going on? Should this happen in my life? Why or why not? So let's answer that question. How do we hear from God? How do we hear from God? Or just a little bit, we're going to answer the, que- the related question. How do we know God's will for our lives? So first, let's answer the question, how do we hear from God? First of all, sometimes uh, what we saw in Acts 16 does happen in our lives. Sometimes we believe God still speaks to us supernaturally, right? Whether it's through dreams, whether it's through visions, or even like things like audible words, or through our thoughts, or through other people speaking to us, we think that still does happen. Uh, It does not happen very often, and we'll talk about why in just a second, but this does happen sometimes, and so, uh, but a few things that we need to remind ourselves of. When God does speak to us like that, first of all, it never contradicts his word, never contradicts what he's spoken to us through the Bible. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, God just has a word that he wants me to tell you, and it's this, and this and whatever the person says obviously contradicts the Bible. It's not from God. Or if you think that you had a vision or a dream and it was really powerful and you're wondering if it's from God or not, but that vision or that dream tells you to sin, tells you to do something contrary to the word of God, then it's not from God. So we always test if something supernatural, if, some, if God does speak to us in some unique, powerful way, we always make sure that it doesn't contradict the Bible. And relatedly, almost always, almost always, it's also verified by other Christians. And so if God is speaking to you in some type of vision or dream or, or some type of other supernatural way, make sure it doesn't contradict the Bible. And also talk to other Christians that you trust. Ask them, what do you think? Talk to your leaders, your pastors, your, your friends, your spouse. Ask them, what do you think? Do you think this is from God? I, um, will you pray with me to get more confirmation if this is true? Or not, And like we saw in our passage today, Paul got the vision, but he didn't leave for Macedonia until him and the rest of, of his crew talk about it. And they all decide together, yes, this is from God. This is the way that God is leading us. It wasn't Paul that just said, hey, I got a vision from God. And it doesn't matter what you guys think, but it's from God. And so how can you really argue with that? But rather, they worked together as a team, trusted voices, and said, is this really what is going on? So even though God sometimes will speak to Christians supernaturally like this, we have to also remember what's going on in the book of Acts, right? So something unique is happening in human history, in salvation history, right now in Acts 
16. So we're in a quite, uh, pretty unique place in history, right? So the gospel has come into the world fully for the first time ever, which is a couple decades after the Holy Spirit is now in all believers and the church is now uh, spreading all over the place. The apostles, the people that knew Jesus, uh, that were sent out by Jesus, they're still alive right now. And so something unique is going on, as well as we have to remember that the New Testament hasn't been written yet, right? And so we're in a unique place of history where they don't quite have number one or that first bullet point. Right? They still have the Old Testament. And at this time, things like uh, early, early creeds or hymns or the history of Jesus or some of the writings of, of, of the apostles, some of these are starting to spread around the churches, but they don't have the New Testament yet. So they, they do still have the Old Testament, but... Uh, not every church, not every Christian has the Bible in their hands. And so uh, there is some unique stuff that is going on in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is moving in miraculous, supernatural, powerful ways to show and to demonstrate and to prove to people that, yes, this really is from God. And so right now we do have the New Testament. We do have the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament to help us know what God is saying to us, what he wants from us, what, the, what the, our future holds all the implications of the gospel. But what's going on right now in Acts uh, 16, it's not, they're not quite there yet. They don't fully have the Bible. So the, the Holy Spirit's showing up and doing these supernatural type things or confirming things or just speaking in these types of ways. Um, it just makes more sense why it's happening so much in the book of Acts and not as much in our lives right now. So right now, when God is speaking to Christians and leaders in the book of Acts, we should probably see this as the needed confirmation that they need to make sure this is what God wants from them, rather than seeing these supernatural acts as something that should be normative and uh, something that we should experience all the time for all Christians throughout time. So you might be asking then, you might be saying, so, so if God won't usually speak to me, via angels, via dreams, via visions, or other type of supernatural means, how do we hear from him? So how do we free, hear from God? So it might, number one, that might happen a few times, maybe, in our lives. So then how do we hear from God? And the answer is we hear from God through his word, which is the Bible. We hear God through his spoken and written down word, the Bible. So the same spirit that is specifically leading Paul and his team to go to certain places and say certain things and empower them to do supernatural signs and wonders and to preach this gospel, that same spirit is the spirit that inspired this book and is the same spirit that lives within uh, Christians. So if we want to hear from God, we open up his word, the Bible. He's not a God who's silent. He's not a God that's hidden or that's hiding from you or from us and that we have to try to just guess or figure out who he is or what he wants. He's a God who speaks, and he speaks to us, especially through his word. So kind of relatedly, the second question, we saw it in our, in, in our passage today. They know exactly what God wants them to do. But what about in our own lives? How do we know God's will for our lives? And a lot of you, probably everyone in this room has asked that question sometime in their life. What does God want me to do? Or what's his will for my life? So to answer that question, relatedly, the answer is we know what God's will is uh, by reading his word, which gives us both directions and boundaries. There's specific things. God wants us to believe in him. God wants us to be a part of a local church. God wants us to trust him, to pray, to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, to spread the gospel through word and deed. So it does give us directions so we know what God wants us to do in our lives. And it also gives us boundaries. So in Christ, there's tons of freedom. We can do lots and lots of stuff. So we're told what we should do, and we're also given boundaries or, or fences that say, hey, you can do whatever you want as long as it's kind of in these boundaries. And so that helps us understand what God's will is for our life. So if we have two jobs to pick from or two universities to choose from or two breakfast cereals to pick from, as long as one of them is not sin, we have freedom to pick one or the other. There is not a verse that says, go to UND and not the U of M, right? But there's boundaries given and uh, direction that we should have that, that the Bible gives us for 
for wisdom and things like that. Relatedly, we should also uh, try to discover what God's will for our life is in the context of Christian community, with trusted Christian voices in our lives, in the context of our community groups or our families or our local church that help us see our blind spots. Other Christians help us spot the sin in our own lives. So we might think, hey, God really wants me to go on this trip. But all the Christians in our life say, eh, you just want to go on that trip and call it a missions trip so that people will give you money to go to a fun place and have a great adventure. Or maybe not. Maybe, they're, maybe the believers in your life are speaking and saying, actually, no, you really are supposed to go on this trip or take this job or make this decision or lead this ministry or volunteer in this spot. And we've all seen number two not happen, and then it goes poorly, right? Someone makes a decision, convinced that it was the right one, convinced that it's God's will for their life, but everyone in their life knows that they're wrong, right? They know that the person is being foolish, that the person is being sinful, and it's just going to lead to unhealth. But they kind of play the God card, and they say, hey, well, God told me to do this. This is God's will for my life. And when they don't do this number two, if they don't ask trusted voices, ask other Christians, what do you think? Is the Spirit uh, guiding you to tell me what to do? Or, or do you see a blind spot in my own life or pride or selfishness or foolishness in my own life? And they don't do that, and it leads to unhealth, and it leads to pain. So we need to work through these big decisions in the context of Christian community with, with trusted Christian leaders and brothers and sisters who know us, who love us, who want what's best for us, and who are also listening to the Holy Spirit's leading. So the third thing, how do we know God's will for our life? We look to his word, we listen and talk to with other believers, and we listen to the Holy Spirit's leading. When Jesus promised his disciples that he would send his Holy Spirit into the world, he said that what the Spirit's going to do is going to, to lead us, to enlighten us, to teach us, to remind us of what Jesus taught. And so we listen to the Holy Spirit's leading. So if we want to know God's will for our lives and making big decisions or even small decisions, we should do these three things. And even beyond that, we can kind of take one more step back. And if you uh, want to know some more specifics, you might say, yeah, I've heard all this stuff be before, but what's, what's God's will exactly for my life? Here's a few other things. So, uh, and you could just, you know, do a, a word search and look for God's will and even more then this would come up. But just a few things. There's specific verses that just tell Christians, this is what God wants in your life. If you want to know God's will, whether you take this job or that job, whether you buy this house or that house, join this team or that team, whether you go to this university or that university, this is what God wants in your life, regardless of the big decisions that you're making. First Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, for this is the will of God, Christian, your sanctification. That's what he wants. He wants your holiness. He wants you to become more and more like Christ. He wants the Spirit to move in your life, and so you become more and more sanctified, so you become more and more holy. That's what God wants in your life. More than a particular decision about whether to go south or north or to go to this city or that city, he wants your heart. He wants you to become more and more like Christ. He wants your sanctification. A little bit later on in that same uh, book, Paul's actually writing it to uh, a church, a church in a city that we're going to read about in just a few weeks. He also says this, and just one chapter later, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So if you're a Christian here today, if you're in Christ Jesus, this is God's will for you. He wants you to be a person that rejoices always, whether it's in suffering or flourishing. He wants you to be a person that prays without ceasing, that is continually connected to him via prayer, that is always asking him for things and, and praising him for things and is speaking with him like a best friend or like a, like a loving parent. And he wants us to be giving thanks in all circumstances. And we know that all these things in our own flesh we cannot do, but because of the Spirit living within us, because of the gospel, this is now fruit in a Christian's life. We're people who rejoice. We're people who are continually speaking and praying and talking to God we rejoice, whether in suffering or in uh, victory in our lives. So if you want to know, as you're doing these three things, as you're trying to figure out what job to take or what house to buy or whether to go left or right, 
as you're, as you're even doing these things, this specifically is what God wants in your life. So until you get the new job, until you buy the new house, until you uh, make a big change, even in that process, this is what God wants in your life. He wants your sanctification. That's his will. He wants you to trust him and to be someone who rejoices because of the gospel. So be encouraged, Hiawatha Church. Be encouraged that God does speak to us today. Not in kind of vague little whispers, but he speaks to us clearly, especially through his word, especially through his son, through the gospel. And that though it might be exciting to have a supernatural vision or to have some type of dream that we know is exactly from God, he has given us his actual word written down for us so we know clearly who he is, how he feels about us, who we are in Christ, and what he desires for us. And not only does he give us his word, he gives us his people, his church, to help us figure things out. And he fills us with his spirit that will help guide us and speak to us. All right, let's move on to the next part of our passage here today. What's the next part of the journey? What happens when Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke get to modern-day Greece? What happens? How, how does mission, how does evangelism, how does church planting look now here in this new continent, now in the, the region of Macedonia? What similarities, what differences do we see? Well, one similarity we see right off the bat, starting in verse 13, they go and they do ministry on the Sabbath. They look for people who are kind of close to God, people who are seekers, people who are kind of spiritual, people who know some about the Old Testament. So starting in verse 13, this is what they do when they land in Greece, when they go to Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So since the city is far, far from Israel and there's probably not enough uh, Jewish people in order for there to be a synagogue, because uh, Paul's uh, usual strategy is to go to synagogue. He doesn't here. So there's probably not enough Jewish people in this uh, city. They go to a river, hope, hopefully, uh, uh, thinking hopefully that they will find a place of worship or a place of prayer or find people who kind of know about the Old Testament or who are God-fears or some Jewish people. And they do. They find a, a group of women who are there by the river uh, praying, and they begin to share the gospel with them. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And so now we meet this new important uh, character uh, named Lydia. So Lydia, she is described here uh, as a successful businesswoman who sells purple cloth. And so uh, just from knowing ancient history, we know that she's probably quite wealthy. Purple cloth was both hard to make uh, and was expensive. And so if she's a, a businesswoman selling purple cloth, she's actually, she's probably very successful and uh, very wealthy. Um, also, she has a household. And so since it doesn't describe her as having a husband or a, or a son, uh, this household is probably describing her servants. So she's probably so wealthy that she has uh, many servants, people employed for her in, uh, in this business. Um, so she's either didn't get married or maybe she is a widow. And not only that, uh, but we also know that her house is quite large. So a little bit later on in the story, we're going to hear that not only does she have this church planning team stay with her, so she has a big enough home where people can stay with her and lodge with her for quite a while, but also the church that does start in this city meets in her house. So that's, that's Lydia. And what happens to her? Verse 14 continues, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you, had if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia hears Paul's teaching. She hears the gospel being proclaimed, and she sees... Uh, that she actually, even though she is a God-fearer, even though she kind of is worshiping the God of the Old Testament, she's like Cornelius, if you remember that character earlier on in the story. She's, she's kind of close to God, but also there's still a barrier. She was close, but still separated from God. She was spiritual. She was seeking, yet she hadn't 
even heard of Jesus yet, let alone trusted in him. So notice, too, that even though Lydia is incredibly successful, right, successful in business, in society, successful in being very influential and powerful and in gaining much material wealth, she's still seeking, right? She's still seeking for something. She's reached the top of the ladder in business and in society and wealth, yet that still didn't fill her completely. Success, money, and power is ultimately empty and powerless to meet our greatest needs. So this is a great word for all of us today, right? People who live in one of the wealthiest, most successful nations and times in uh, human history. We can be yelled into believing that if I just get the next promotion or the next raise or the next job, or if I can just get to the next stage of my life, that I will be fulfilled, that this need in my heart will be met. We hear constantly in our culture that just more recognition, more influence, more power, that that will bring us fulfillment and meaning in our life. Yet, like Lydia, we need to see that while uh, all these things can be really good, our wealth, our success can be really good, ultimately it will not fill us. It will not bring us the meaning and the hope that we desire and that only the gospel of Jesus can bring. But we see here, too, that Lydia's story doesn't end here. Right? She hears the gospel. She believes this good news that the rescuing, victorious Christ that's promised in the Old Testament that she probably knew pretty well, that he actually is here and he has come as the God-man, Jesus Christ. And she receives this good news. And she's baptized publicly, demonstrating to all these people that know her and that she has influence over. She publicly declares to them that her, the old Lydia ha, ha, has died, that she has died to her old nature as she goes down in the water, and that she has risen, and she is uh, risen with Christ, that she has been spiritually reborn as she comes up out of that water, publicly uh, displaying that in her, bapti- in her baptism. And not only does she uh, convert, but she also, you, or we also see that those employees or those servants uh, under her influence also believe. They see that this woman that, this, this woman that they respect that has power over them, that has influence over them, that she believes, that she's convinced that everything that the Old Testament was teaching about and what they had been putting their hope in, that that's all filled in this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ. And her household also believes and is baptized as well. So if this today, maybe this describes you. Maybe you are a seeker. Maybe that's how you describe yourself. Or maybe you describe yourself as spiritual, but not religious. Or maybe you kind of like Jesus or are intrigued by him, but you're not really a church person or you're not really into religion or Christianity. Let this be an invitation to you. Someone just like you, this woman, uh, Lydia, sees and hears about Jesus Christ and believes and is baptized publicly. And then what we see here is we see that out of this new life, out of this new spiritual life, the Spirit uses her in powerful ways, right? We don't just see a conversion, which is great, but we see the fruit of that conversion as well. She invites this church planning team into her home, and she says, you're brand new in this city. You need a place to stay. You need food to eat. Come into my home. Let me show you generosity and hospitality. And she, bring, she uses her wealth to bless this church planning team, and we're going to see later on in the story that she actually becomes a sponsor of the church in this city. She's one of the people that uses her wealth to fund this church and uses her home as a place where the church in Philippi will meet. Now I want us to see something. I want us to look at how Luke describes Lydia's conversion. I want us to look at the the words that uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, how he describes Lydia's salvation. Oh, real quick. We're having a baptism in a couple weeks. I was supposed to say that in here. So let uh, Lydia's example and her household example be an invitation to you. If uh, you would like to get baptized and you haven't yet, we're going to have one at Lake Nokomis, uh, August 11th, so save the date. Um, or like I said, if you are, you know, if you're kind of just on the cusp of Christianity, if you're a seeker or if you are just kind of spiritual and you're just wondering more about this stuff, talk to the person that brought you, talk to a leader, talk to myself, would love to, 
tell you more about Jesus and more about salvation and what Jesus offers. And I want to invite you to consider getting baptized uh, later on in this summer. So if you have questions about the baptism, come talk to us. would love to have you uh, consider that. But now let's look at Lydia's conversion and the way that Luke describes it. Many ways Luke could have described it, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is how it is described. The Lord opened her heart, speaking of Lydia, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or the NIV says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. So like the Bible says all over, as well as we've seen this again and again and again, in the book of Acts, we see that both the Spirit is moving in people's hearts at conversion, at salvation, and the people are responding to that message. It's both. And so uh, Luke makes it very clear. Lydia wasn't just brilliant. She wasn't just uh, a person who had finally figured it out, but actually the Spirit was doing something in her heart. The Lord was opening her heart to be able to pay attention to this gospel message that was being preached. Uh, earlier in Acts, we, uh, we read this just a few chapters ago. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we've seen this language all throughout Acts. Here's just one example of it is that God is behind our salvation. He is the one that is opening up our eyes to see. He is the one that is enlightening us. The one that is, uh, um, yeah, here it says, appointing those to believe. And so we see both. God is appointing people to eternal life, and the people are responding. They have a responsibility to believe or to not believe, to choose to trust in this message or to choose to trust in their own self. Uh, Luke, again, the same author that wrote Acts, back in uh, the Gospel of Luke when he's writing about Jesus, we see some similar language. Speaking of Jesus right after his resurrection, uh, it says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So this is something that Jesus does. This is something that God does. That apart from Christ, we're blind. We're spiritually blind. Our minds are darkened. Our hearts are cold and hardened. But what God does, he's, he steps in. And he opens up our eyes. He enlightens our minds. He melts these hearts of stone that we have. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. But it wasn't just that. At the same time, we also see that she paid attention. Or that she had to respond. She couldn't just listen to these words. And this is a word for us today. If you're not a Christian here today, just knowing the gospel message, just hearing about Jesus and what he did for you, doesn't make you saved. You have to respond to that. You have to believe. And here with Lydia, we see she does as well. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention, or the NAV says, to respond. Just in a few chapters, we're going to see also in the same book of Acts, uh, some great miracle happens and they ask, uh, I believe it's Paul, what do we need to do to be saved? I think it's the Philippian jailer who says this. Uh, I think actually just in next week's passage, what do we need to do to be saved? And the response is, they say, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so we see a response, both the Holy Spirit doing something miraculous in our hearts and we see humanity needing to respond to that, needing to receive that message, needing to put their trust and their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The ESV Bible uh, comments on this, helps us understand how do these two things work together? Because it kind of seems like a contradiction. Is God the one who's saving, or is it people and their response, their belief, their trust? Is that what's saving them? Seems like it has to be an either-or, but the Bible is saying over and over again, and we're seeing this in Acts, it's saying both. So the ESV study Bible kind of helps us articulate and better understand what's going on here. Throughout Acts, Luke affirms the sovereignty of God over all of life, while at the same time affirming the significance of human activity, as evidenced by the remarkable human effort and sacrifice involved in proclaiming the gospel. Thus, without contradiction, maintains a dual emphasis on divine election, God's the one that's appointing people to be saved, and on human response, they believed. 
or in Lydia's passage here today, God is behind opening Lydia's heart to be able to fully understand and see and understand and, and receive the gospel. And at the same time, Lydia is choosing to believe. So finally, I want us to take a look at Lydia and see this incredible woman, this great character here in Acts 16, who is both an example for us as Christians, for those of us in this room who are Christians, but not just an example for us, but also an example of Jesus Christ himself. So let's look at this character. Let's look at Lydia. Kind of two big things we see in her life, and it kind of plays out a little bit more in Acts 16. But we see as a great example for us, a great example of what Christian living looks like, filled with the Spirit, how it, how it looks. We see two huge things. We see generosity, and we see hospitality. Generosity, she uses her money and resources for the sake of serving and caring for others, including giving uh, the, the church in her city a place to meet. We also see hospitality. She welcomes others into her home, meeting their tangible needs, providing meals and a place for safety and for rest and for refuge and for this church planting team to come and to stay. So just a real quick aside on the difference between hospitality and entertainment. Uh, just to be really clear on what we mean or what the Bible means when it speaks about hospitality. We talk about this a lot here at Hiawatha. It's here in our passage here today. But there's a big difference between hospitality and entertainment. So when we see what Lydia is doing, she's not showing off. She's not saying, look at me and how impressive I am, how wealthy and powerful I am. Come into my home and see how great I am. But rather, her hospitality is, a fo is focusing on others, is trying to care for others. Jen Wilkin helps us kind of understand the difference between hospitality and entertainment, especially with our hearts. When we are called to do hospitality, how should we be thinking about this? Jen writes, hospitality involves setting a table that makes everyone feel comfortable. It chooses a menu that allows face time with guests instead of being chained to the stovetop. It picks up the house to make things pleasant, but doesn't feel the need to conceal evidence of everyday life. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts, feelings, pursuits, and preferences of its guests. It is good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. Hospitality focuses attention on others. So here she contrasts them. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong. Hospitality savors what was shared. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. So when you hear about Christians being called to be hospitable, this is what we're talking about. Giving of our own homes and our resources and our uh, work in order to make others feel welcomed and comfortable and wanted and blessed and cared for. Just like Lydia here in our passage today and also just like Jesus himself. So in Lydia, we see a great example of a spirit-filled believer who's loving the church really well through generosity, through hospitality. And now I want us to notice one more thing that's super practical for us, about Lydia being an example for us. In Lydia, we see a person that's incredibly strong, right? She's successful, she's influential, she's wealthy, and she's also independent, right? She's the head of her household. She doesn't have a husband or a son who's, like making things happen for her. She's incredibly independent. Yet, when she meets Christ, when she becomes a Christian, when she's filled with the Spirit, she gives up all those things for the sake of others, especially for the sake of other Christians. Just like Jesus. When Lydia becomes a Christian, her identity changes. Her priorities change. She is still successful. She's still wealthy. She's still strong. She's still influential and probably still quite independent. She doesn't need other people to, to meet her needs. Yet, she holds those things very loosely. No longer is she defined by being a strong, independent, wealthy woman, but now she chooses to be defined as a Christian, as a sinner saved by grace. She's holding her power, her independence, her money loosely and chooses to open up her home and her resources and her wealth in order to make other people feel welcomed and wanted and safe and seen. And in all of this, we see an example, not just an example for us to follow, 
but an example that looks just like Jesus himself. So Lydia is not just an example for us to follow, but she's also a Christ figure. She's someone that looks and embodies Jesus Christ. Let's look at Jesus as well. So Lydia was generous, which resembles, which looks like our Savior, who was generous, who used his wealth for the sake of others. St. Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, for our sake, high wealth of church, Christ became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So like Lydia gave this example to us, it looks like Jesus Christ, the ultimate one who showed up generosity, who became poor so that we might become spiritually rich. Hospitality as well, we saw it in Lydia, and it points to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who welcomes others sacrificially into his life, into his home, into his family, into his salvation. Romans fifteen seven, written to the church, says, Therefore, Christians, welcome one another, because Christ has first welcomed you. And all of this will bring glory to God. And finally, let's look at Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was strong, the strongest one, who was independent. He didn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Yet, he gives up all of that for the sake of others. Philippians 2.8 describes Christ. Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's look to this strong, powerful God-man who embodies, uh, or who, what Lydia has done in our passage today, what that embodies, what that points to, a greater version of that. Let us put our trust in the man who denied himself, who gave up his wealth and his power for the sake of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this really cool passage that sees uh, the gospel moving into this new area, this new group of people uh, trusting in you and believing and being converted, and then also just seeing a great picture of you, a great picture of your son, his sacrificial death uh, in our place, on our behalf, his love for us, his generosity, his hospitality. God, we thank you for that good news. We pray that when we see generosity and hospitality here in our church, within Christian community, in our families, in our community groups, in our ministries, God, that we would realize and remember that that's just a whisper of your great love and hospitality and generosity and kindness towards us. So we pray for more of that by the power of your spirit that our church would be uh, known as a place of hospitality and kindness and generosity because the Holy Spirit lives in us, because that has first happened to us through the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for that good news. Amen.